I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> A Few Good Men. You ever served in an infantry unit, son? No, sir. Ever served in a forward area? No, sir. Ever put your life in another man's hands, ask him to put his life in yours? No, sir. We follow orders, son. We follow orders or people die. It's that simple. Are we clear? Yes, sir. Are we clear? Crystal. All those having business with this general court-martial, stand forward and you shall be heard. The facts of the case are these. On midnight of September 6th, the accused entered the barracks room of their platoon mate. They woke him up, tied his arms and legs with tape, forced a rag into his throat. A few minutes later, a chemical reaction caused his lungs to begin bleeding. He drowned in his own blood and was pronounced dead at 37 minutes past midnight. Do you think Santiago was murdered? Private Santiago is dead, and that is a tragedy. But he is dead because he had no code. He is dead because he had no honor. And God was watching. How do you feel about that theory? Sounds good to me. I'll knock it all down to involuntary manslaughter. No deal, we're going to court. No, you're not. Why not? Because you'll lose. You want to investigate me? Roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who were trained to kill me. So don't think for one second you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. You men follow orders or people die. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You! But if this case is handled in the same fast food, slick-ass, Persian Bazaar manner with which you seem to handle everything else, then something's gonna get missed. In the heart of the nation's capital, in a courthouse of the United States government, one man will stop at nothing to keep his honor, and one will stop at nothing to find the truth. Oh, and there's a woman there, too. But that's not important right now. This is a commissioned show put forward by Marty Hui. In stark contrast with our eight-person She-Ra episode, this one is just Sharon and I for hyper-focus. Sharon in particular is deeply familiar with this movie since it was one of her formative teen repeat viewings in the early 90s. Her equivalent of my relationship to Jurassic Park. Uh, This courtroom drama, which would be why we haven't covered it yet, because even though... Sharon absolutely loves it. It's 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 a it's a difficult. Well, we've never really covered a courtroom drama before. It's a, it's a it's a challenging one for us to approach. It's not our wheelhouse usually, so that's that would be why we uh, needed that nudge from uh, a commission. It's the third Rob Reiner film that we will have covered this year, specifically without expecting to. Again, in all three cases, and we are going to be talking about the Marines. Due process of law and America and corruption at the highest levels. And I will be deferring to Sharon's know-how where required. Hmm. <laughs> on a few good men. Maybe not necessarily on the say, rest of them. Maybe that. not the, the like the courtroom stuff, but the script. I know the script inside out and backwards. Okay, so this is written by Aaron Sorkin of uh, The Newsroom and Sports Night. Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and of course, The West Wing, which uh, we've been asked about in our time before. I've never actually finished The West Wing. 
And there's an actual solid reason why not. I loved it uh, back uh, when I first started watching it in the early 2000s. It would have been post-Clinton and uh, during the Bush 2 administration, which was farcical. And I think I was watching it. Uh, it was it was begun during the tail end of the Clinton administration. So they were kind of giving us a rosy colored, this is a show about the White House. And uh, we got to about four seasons in. And then Aaron Sorkin was fired from the production uh, and left us with the end of season four was a real doozy of a right okay so the president's daughter gets kidnapped uh, and it's like 24 that's what everyone seems to want now so fuck you and there's a really good moment when john goodman gets brought in as a replacement president because martin sheen is emotionally compromised by the scenario of his daughter being kidnapped but that did leave the west wing in a very difficult tenuous position and then sorkin uh, exited the project leaving us with three more seasons five six and seven to get jimmy smits in place uh who was based at the time on uh, a young barack obama and I got to season five and it was fucking miserable. For some reason, the the white like it, the the lightness of those earlier uh, seasons, which by the way were put out prior to nine eleven occurring, uh, was confounded uh, by a pervasive darkness. And um, it, it seemed like they drew the blinds in the West Wing and they never let the sunlight in. And it was a real chore to get through. I actually got through about halfway through season six and um, got past the older business of John Spencer's Leo McGarry dealing with alcoholism. You know, I, I do intend at some point to go back and finish it. It's not the right time now. Because just watching earlier episodes of The West Wing is fucking painful. It's a naive show, and, and that's something you can slate at a lot of Aaron Sorkin's work. But at the same time, it's showing you an administration that gives a shit. And the manifestly, transparently corrupt and self-serving motley crew of cartoons currently serving the nation that are far worse written in real life. Uh, it, it's it's like, wow, um, what, how did we end up with demons? But tangentially linked the reason that i stopped watching the west wing wasn't just that season five was miserable i think i did try and struggle on with it for a bit uh but in 2004 bush jr got elected a second time and i was staying up the whole night just watching the election coverage because i was you know fired up i i knew more about politics then than i probably do now and uh then the results came in and i was crestfallen utterly fucking crestfallen and I thought, America can't possibly want this twice in a row, surely. How fucking just, you know what? I'm done with it. I'm done with politics. And I kind of abandoned it and walked away from it and, and uh, it lost myself in fantasy instead because the real world was just too fucking miserable. Though, it never really left me in uh, that I wanted to make something like the West Wing. And obviously, it was a huge contributor to not only Arlington, the uh, third novel I wrote, if you don't count Cartographer's Handbook as an actual novel. Um, but, I mean, just the whole... The, everything that goes on in Washington throughout New Century is very much uh, informed upon by especially those first four seasons of the West Wing. <sighs> And then there's this, which I saw prior to that and, you know, really enjoyed. And, uh, you know, not as much as Sharon, but what was your relationship with this one in particular? 
It's a bit of a tricky one to outline because my memory is so poor. Um, the thing I do definitely remember is getting this for Christmas 1993. So the year after it came out. Along with Terminator 2. And also major replay value in the VCR. Yeah. And I had just turned 15, so when I saw it in the cinema, I must have been just shy of 15, so sneaked in there. <laughs> um, it's okay. I saw Four Weddings and a Funeral and True Lies before I was 15, so I won't tell anyone if you won't. <laughs> and oh, no, we told the world the police will come <laughs> and get us. Sorry, I won't say which cinema it is so they won't get in trouble. <laughs> The connection that I made with this, I put down to, I think, three major elements. One, Sorkin script. Which is, I put here, impeccable. The man has a gift for dialogue. Mm -hmm. And obviously we saw a lot more evidence of that with the West Wing. Um, But the rapid fire back and forth in this was absolutely brain-lightening. You're the attorney division assigned? I'm lead counsel to Sam Weinberg. I have no responsibilities here whatsoever. Lieutenant, how long have you been in the Navy? Going on nine months now. And how long have you been out of law school? A little over a year. I see. Have I done something wrong? No. Just that when I petitioned division to have counsel assigned, I was hoping I would be taken seriously. No offense taken, in case you were wondering. Commander, Lieutenant Caffrey is generally considered the best litigator in our office. He's successfully plea bargained 44 cases in nine months. One more, I get a set of steak knives. Have you ever been in a courtroom? I once had my driver's license suspended. Danny. Commander, from what I understand, if this thing goes to court, they won't need a lawyer, they'll need a priest. No, they'll need a lawyer. Dawson's family's been contacted. Downey's closest living relative is Jenny Miller, his aunt on his mother's side. She hasn't been contacted yet. Would you like me to take care of that? Sure, if you feel like it. One of the people we'll be seeing down there is the barracks CEO, Colonel Nathan Jessup. I assume you've heard of him. Who hasn't? He's been in the papers lately. He's expected to be appointed director of operations at National Security Council. Really? These are the letters that Santiago wrote in his eight months at Gitmo. That's Guantanamo Bay. I knew that one. He wrote to the fleet commander, HQ Atlantic, to the commandant of the Marine Corps, even his senator. He wanted to be transferred off the base. No one was listening. Are you with me? Yeah. Finally, he wrote to the Naval Investigative Service, where he offered information about Corporal Dawson's fence line shooting in exchange for a transfer. Right. Is that all? Lieutenant, this letter makes it look like your client had a motive to kill Santiago. Gotcha. And Santiago is who? The victim. Write that down. Am I correct in assuming that these letters don't paint a flattering picture of Marine Corps life at Guantanamo Bay? Yes, I'm among... further right in assuming that a protracted investigation of this incident might cause some embarrassment for the Security Council guy? Colonel Jessup. I... Twelve years. I'm sorry? I'll get them to drop the conspiracy and conduct unbecoming. Twelve years. You haven't talked to a witness or looked at a piece of paper. Pretty impressive, huh? You're going to have to go deeper than that. Commander, do you have some sort of jurisdiction here that I should know about? My job is to make sure that you do your job. I'm special counsel for internal affairs, so my jurisdiction's pretty much in your face. Read the letters. 
I'll expect a report when you return from Cuba. Sure. You're dismissed. I always forget that part. He's a little preoccupied. <clears throat> Team's playing Bethesda Medical next week. Tell your friend not to get cute down there. The Marines in Guantanamo are fanatical. About what? About being Marines. It gets you fired up. It gets you thinking. It's uh, it's the kind of dialogue that makes you inquisitive. Well, it's the it's the the kind of dialogue that works really really well for somebody whose brain moves extremely quickly but only in certain circumstances mm -hmm. because it demands that you process the thing that was just said while you're still listening to the thing that they're saying next mm -hmm. which sometimes can be very difficult to do but back then it was like a it was like a workout for my brain mm -hmm. so i really appreciated it from that perspective so that was the first thing um i uh, after watching the film several times and basically committing most of the script to memory. I, even when we were watching it today, I was kind of having to fight myself not to um, do all the lines. <laughs> like, all the lines. I, bought... I guess maybe my version of that would be Pulp Fiction then, 1994, so the yeah. same year. I committed that to audio memory. I could mm. start from... Forget it. It's too risky. I'm through doing that shit. Yeah, Pop Fiction was the first film also that made me want to be something to do with film yeah. for my career. Now, I it move, yeah, in, in the same vein, um, falling in love with the script for this made me then buy a copy of the play. The play right. Was it from the first draft or was it from the revised? Because the play went on for several years and he tightened and tightened and revised the play as he went over the years. Um, I think it must have been a fairly early version Although it did say uh, now a major motion picture by mm. Rob Reiner mm. on the on the cover, but the, the but cover they can put didn't that have. On, like, they're, they're, I'm assuming they wouldn't keep revising the published version of the play with every single iteration. I wouldn't have thought so, no. Um, but by the time we actually saw the play performed in London with oh, you're gonna drop that bomb right now, <laughs> yeah. Well, we saw this performed in London with Rob Lowe. Yes, mm. appropriately enough. Mm. He's also quite gifted with Sorkin dialogue. Mm. I think the version that we saw was much closer to the film. Yeah, they'd taken than, a lot of cues from the 92 film. the play film. that I had We read. saw that around like 2005, five, six. Yeah. Um, but my reason for getting hold of the play was because, and this would have been around 95, I want to say, mm -hmm. 95, 96, um, and I was doing a GCSE drama and looking at doing an A-level in theatre studies. And I was basically acquiring play scripts to mine for monologue performances. And, and I had hoped to get a piece that I could perform in class, but I couldn't because they're all so fast that they go by in a heartbeat. None of them were long enough. And I sure as heck didn't have anybody that I could um, draft to perform opposite me to be able to do the repartee quickly enough to do any of the dialogue scenes. Uh, yeah, apparently uh, uh, 2000, September 2005 was when this was uh, going. Right, so about 10 years later then. Uh, but yeah, that, that would be a reason why the script is impeccable. It was revised repeatedly throughout the uh, theatre screenings of it. Mm. Uh, and then... Uh, 
Sorkin went back to the drawing board to adapt it to the screen and, and kind of make it more action packed. And in, he kind of sem- semi-seriously mentioned that he would need to put lots more explosions into it. Action-packed, by which he meant put some outside scenes in it. Yes. Kathy <laughs> buys a paper. Um, yes. Uh, but you said that it has dated. Uh, and what, what elements of it did you feel uh, like watching the 1992 film here uh, are somewhat different in 2020? It's dated not necessarily by virtue of time passing, but by virtue of me getting older. And I don't see the world the same way I did as when I was 15. And the other two elements of why the film appealed to me kind of feed into this. So um, in addition to the the script and how that just absolutely fascinated me, uh, the characterization in particular of uh, Joanne Galloway played by uh, Demi Moore and Daniel Caffey played by Tom Cruise. Demi Moore, by the way, is the only woman in this entire film apart from Aunt Jenny, yes. briefly. Yes, it is, a, it is a very light on the female performances. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. West, uh, West Wing abundant with female characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is about the military in the late 80s, early 90s. So, you know. But her, her quest throughout the movie is to be taken seriously. Exactly. And that's her main anxiety. And the elements of Joe that I identified ridiculously heavily with were... Legion, mm-hmm. quite frankly, um, to list them. the the fact that she was incredibly good at her job, um, incredibly dedicated to doing the job the way she was expected to do her job. This is coming from a place not of arrogance, but in the uh, observation that you take pride in whatever job you yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the fact that she... Um, that you seek to went, be incredibly good at your job. Yeah. The fact that she went far out of her way uh, to be taken seriously by her superiors, who she obviously had a great deal of respect for and wanted the respect of. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she uh, utilised the skills that they didn't want her for, which I will get into later, as well as the skills that they did want her for, but because there were a handful of boxes that she just couldn't tick, they didn't take her seriously. And so all of those elements I really, really identified with. So if I was Joe, Dan was basically every guy... I came up against in school who shone and was popular and kicked my tail at XYZ and just generally seemed to have the eye and attention and appeal and charisma that, try as I might, I just couldn't muster. Joe also has a uh, supreme respect for the military. She prizes the Marines for saying that they are protectors and that mm. they that the speech is, you will sleep at night because I'm protecting you. Yeah, uh, they stand on a wall and say, nothing's going to hurt you tonight, not That's on my watch. Yeah. It's not, the, the way I take it is not specifically so much that she's got that respect for the military but as for, that for the ethic. Ethic, the, yes. The ideal and the ethic that she perceives lies behind the best of the military. A few good men. Yeah. But the other thing that meant that I connected very strongly with this film is the fact that I was brought up in a 
semi-military environment. I was going to ask about that. Um, I was uh, born into an RAF family. Uh, my dad was in the RAF my whole life up until his retirement. Uh, my mum was in the RAF as well just before I was born. That's how they met. Um, she only she came out because she wanted to have kids. But I spent the early part of my life on uh, living in quarters, on Air Force bases, moving because dad got new orders. And uh, even after we moved off quarters and got a private house, I still lived up to a certain age, around about eight or nine, on uh, housing estates that had high military populations and went to schools that had lots of, of um, military kids at them. So that was the environment that I was absolutely uh, subsumed in up to the, up to my sort of the preteen bracket. So... There was also, in addition to all of the personal character connection and in addition, in addition to the fascination with the writing, there was also a heavy, heavy wave of uh, something akin to nostalgia in the parades and the music and the uniforms and the yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and the, you know orders get made and you follow them that's how I grew up even even down to things like the standard operating procedure manuals that they use in one of the court scenes I remember being very very young and sitting and reading my dad's that he'd brought home to to um, revise for various exams and things with um, so all of that was just it felt like it was already part of me you had reverie on your walkman no, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to go jump over the characters and we can refer back to the characters as we tackle theme because there's a lot of weighty themes here mm-hmm. tied up with the events. And I don't. this is not going to be a massively long episode uh, because we can be somewhat succinct about it. It is a... It's fairly complex while you're watching it, but it's fairly simple as a film. A uh, young Marine who has been trying to get out of not necessarily is it the marines all told or just specifically off this base which is running him too hard and uh treating him very badly uh named santiago is brought to the military hospital um in a in a terrible state and uh it is we see at the beginning of the film so there's no question as to how it's happening he is attacked for reasons unknown mm. and uh winds up dead as a result the military seem to want to get this thing put through the courts very swiftly. They pick Tom Cruise's character, Dan Caffey, because he has a penchant for proclivity for getting cases plea bargained. He wraps things up very, very quickly because he's terrified to lose. Yeah. And they want to take advantage of that, although I don't know in how much depth they understand his motivations. Um, But they want to use his ability to run through these things at a great rate of knots in order to get it done and dusted and put away. Because the colonel who is in charge of the base is um, in the running for election to be a special advisor to the president's National Security Council. Mm. And they want as few eyes on this situation as possible. Yeah. 
it's it stinks and there's uh it's only really about halfway through the movie or at the end at least of act one mm. i think because act two is quite short not all of that one excuse me i wanted to talk to you about corporal dawson and private downey say again dawson and downey those names sound like they should mean something to me but I'm... dawson downey your clients the cuba thing yes yeah, so dawson and downey right I've done something wrong again, haven't I? I was just wondering why two guys have been locked up since this morning while their lawyer's outside hitting a ball. We need to practice. That wasn't funny. It's a little funny. Lieutenant, would you be very insulted if I recommended to your supervisor that he assign different counsel? Why? Because I don't think you're fit to handle the defense. You don't even know me. Ordinarily, it takes someone hours to discover I'm not fit to handle a defense. <clears throat> oh, come on. That was damn funny. You're wrong. I do know you. Daniel Alistair Caffey, born June 8, 1964, at Boston Mercy Hospital. Your father's Lionel Caffey, former Navy judge advocate and attorney general of the United States, died 1985. You went to Harvard Law, then you joined the Navy. Probably because that's what your father wanted you to do. And now you're just treading water for the three years you've got to serve in the JAG Corps. Just kind of laying low till you can get out and get a real job. If that's the situation, that's fine. I won't tell anyone. But it's my feeling that if this case is handled in the same fast food, slick ass, Persian bazaar manner with which you seem to handle everything else, then something's going to get missed. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I allowed Dawson and Downey to spend any more time in prison than absolutely necessary because their attorney had predetermined the path of least resistance. Wow. I'm sexually aroused, Commander. <laughs> Act one is, okay, so this case, and then they approach it from multiple different angles and go, oh, it's kind of an open and shut one. And that when we meet Tom Cruise, he's playing baseball and being cocky and kind of plea bargaining while playing ball yeah. just to get his uh, uh, de- de- his defendant off uh, on a, uh, a, a lighter sentence uh, because he bought a, and smoked a dime bag of oregano. June 2. Sorry. You gotta trust me, Sherby. You keep your eyes open, your chances of catching the ball increase by a factor of 10. Kathy. Let's try it again. Kathy! Dave, you seem distraught. We were supposed to meet in your office 15 minutes ago to talk about the McDermott case. You're stalling on this thing. Now, we either get it done, and I mean now, or no kidding, Kathy, I'm gonna hang your boy from a fucking yard arm. Yard arm? Sherby, does the Navy still hang people from yard arms? I don't think so. Dave, Sherby doesn't think the Navy hangs people from yard arms anymore. I'm going to charge him with possession and being under the influence while on duty. You plead guilty, I'll recommend 30 days in the brig with loss of rank and pay. It was oregano, Dave. It was $10 worth of oregano. Yeah, well, your client thought it was marijuana. My client's a moron. That's not against the law. In fact, in some states, they positively encourage it. He is characterized in kind of a... Like, you could have Chris Pine play this character... Yes. ...ten years ago, maybe. Yeah. These days, Chris Pine plays slightly older, more thoughtful characters. Mm. But around about Star Trek 09... Mm. You could have done this, actually, with Pine as Kathy and Quinto as Ross. Yeah. Pine has also played Jack Ryan, which is kind of a weird throwback to the late 80s, early 90s. And what interested major audiences then? 
So it was Grisham and Clancy when we were in our early teens. Yes. Was like, there were a lot of courtroom dramas. Like the late 80s, the biggest movies, the ones that made the most money, which is chicken feed by today's standards, mm. were dramas like Rain Man, uh, like In the Line of Fire, The Pelican Brief, Patriot Games, Rising Sun, The Client, Witness, A Time to Kill, Presumed Innocent, The Fugitive. And period crime dramas like Bugsy and The Untouchables. You know, Police Academy 7, Mission to Moscow. Uh, and then later on, people got really... In, possibly just because of airport reading. So books had to be either written by Tom Clancy or John Gresham. Military light type mm. stuff, you know, because they, they didn't really have the budgets for big military type films. But, you know, Courtland dramas are inexpensive. You can get a lot of tension and a lot of... Um, you know, you, you get a star like Julia Roberts or Denzel Washington with Philadelphia and, and Tom Hanks, and, and you just get people into the cinema to see that star power there yeah. for a lot of talking in rooms, mm. which in the early 90s was cheap, and it could make for a great uh, multiplier for the box office. Yeah, and it was also <clears throat> mirrored by uh, what was going on with TV at the time. Um, certainly, I mean, L.A. Law, I yeah. was a big fan of. Um, NYPD and Blue. Then, yeah, NYPD Blue. And, and this kind of was a springboard for the slew of police procedurals, procedurals yeah. and uh, investigation drama series like JAG, NCIS, CS, all the CSIs. I think it started with the original CSI, obviously. But, mm, um, yeah. yeah, that... that- but, but that... that- uh, waterfall mm. of that type of, of show never really stopped. Mm. And I think it's only now that they are, by necessity, having to give them some serious re-examination. Another thing in the early 90s that wasn't very expensive to make but got people fascinated was serial killer films. and started by Silence of the Lambs, which then it kind of gathered steam. It didn't really hit that point until seven. Manhunter. Well, yeah, but it didn't really, like, Manhunter made about a tenth of yeah. what Science of the Lambs Very made. Very true. Oh, I tell a lie, I've just run the numbers. Uh, Manhunter cost 15 million and made 8.6 million, which means it lost money. And then five years later, Science of the Lambs cost 19 million and made 272 million, which means Manhunter made 134th of what the Anthony Hopkins film made. Uh, it didn't really hit a, a, a suddenly everyone's trying to do this until David Fincher's Seven in the mid-90s, mm. and then suddenly everyone was trying to do serial killer films. And it was always, how did they do this strange thing mm. and what went on here? So again, we're hanging around with the courtrooms, we're hanging around with the, the, the police and investigations. And mm. like at the very core of all of this is crime and yes. violence going on behind closed doors and usually crime that was gotten away with. It feels like these days, things like Michael Clayton, a legal drama with George Clooney that ended with the obvious villain just sort of monologuing how they did the whole nefarious thing. And then Michael Clayton goes, ha ha, for I had a dictaphone all along. And then the feds move in and then that's it. The day is saved because it turns out that this person was crooked and we heard it on tape. And justice slammed down and worked swiftly because we will not tolerate liars, thieves and crooks in the upper echelons of our society. Nowadays, that, that's a ridiculously naive prospect. Like that, it doesn't happen like that anymore. We are beyond that stage. We can have straight up avowed, unabashed criminals who use yeah and so what as their defence to every single fucking crime mm. and are untouchable somehow. And I think, honestly, what the aftermath of 
the the initial opening scene of this and the attack on Santiago is all about and to me the core theme of the this story and by extension the courtroom drama format the serial killer format the uh, the spy thriller format mm. even to an extent is motive and culpability mm. why did this person do this thing and how responsible can we hold them for it mm. And I think those are two things that are that certainly for the decades that I've been watching these kind of films and those kind of shows, it is a concept which absolutely fascinates us because fundamentally those are two things that we can never really know. We cannot be inside somebody else's head. But we can ponder them from every possible angle. And by God do we. Mm. I'm less interested when it becomes exotic murder of the week and uh, it's about, you know, what well, exactly, horrible things can we do to women the, to, to get the shock factor yeah. that will get people talking about us though we, as we have to beat not only our contemporaries but ourselves. That's right. Because I say when this all the time. When you're coming at it from that angle, what you are fundamentally saying is, but working out motive and culpability is hard. Can't I just throw some shit at the screen and, and hope that people are fascinated enough by that? And isn't it scarier when the killer just does terror things and we don't know why no it's boring and i can see what you're doing yeah the motive and the culpability for me Hmm. that's the interesting part that's the bit that tends to get dropped and on that note a few good men definitely delivers on that and it sets up a critique of some very high up systems that are trusted and that i feel is something that isn't dated and in fact is painfully relevant yes i agree maybe how the characters in the film refer to and regard these systems Mm. but the actual condemnation of them is very right now yeah i do think to an extent the film has a naivety which is absolutely to have been expected from the early 90s yes Um, there's nothing that was released in the early 90s that isn't naive yeah They couldn't know. The range of character perspectives on the systems and their gaps, shall we say, are still very, very relevant. Who the fuck is PFC William T. Santiago? Private Santiago is a member of 2nd Platoon Bravo, sir. Yeah. Well, apparently he's not very happy down here at Shangri-La because he's written letters to everybody but Santa Claus asking for a transfer. And now he's telling tales about a fence line shooting. Matthew? I'm I'm appalled, sir. You're appalled. This kid broke the chain of command and ratted on a member of his unit to say nothing of the fact that he is a U.S. Marine and it would appear he can't run from here to there without collapsing from heat exhaustion. What the fuck is going on in Bravo Company, Matthew? Colonel, I think perhaps it would be better to hold this discussion in private. That won't be necessary, Colonel. I can handle this situation, sir. The same way you handled the Curtis Bell incident? Don't interrupt me, Lieutenant. I'm still your superior officer. And I'm yours, Matthew. I want to know what we're going to do about this. I think Santiago should be transferred off the base immediately. He's that bad, huh? Not only that, but where of this letter's bound to get out, he's going to get his ass whipped. Maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, maybe we have a responsibility as officers to train Santiago. 
Maybe we as officers have a responsibility to this country to see that the men and women charged with its security are trained professionals. Yes, I'm certain that I read that somewhere once. And now I'm thinking, Colonel Morganson, that your suggestion of transferring Santiago, while expeditious and certainly painless, might not be, in a manner of speaking, the American way. Santiago stays where he is. We're going to train the lad. John, you're in charge. Santiago doesn't make 4646 on his next proficiency in conduct report. And I'm going to blame you. Then I'm going to kill you. Yes, sir. Right, so uh, one of the themes that I was refreshingly happy to see absent was uh, there was no take my breath away or show me heaven romance between Dan and Joe. This is not something we specifically need to talk about, but it just seemed almost odd that there was this beautiful, hot young starlet in the shape of Demi Moore who had just become huge thanks to Ghost. And she's paired up with the... At the time, I would say... Man of the moment. The man of the moment. Like, Brad Pitt hadn't yet broken. Nope. And there was uh, around, well, obviously the mid-90s with... Um, uh, Interview with the Vampire was just a, a year or so off now from this. Uh, that it? was 94, yeah. 94, but you've, yeah. basically you go from uh, Rain Man in 88... Yeah. Um, uh, Top Gun in 86... Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Launch, yeah, all yeah. right. Okay, so Top Gun in 86, Rain Man in 88, cocktail. there's Cocktail. Um, there was Days of Thunder in 1990. Mm-hmm. The uh, Firm, legal yeah, thriller. Yeah, absolutely. He was, he was the it. He was on every te- heterosexual teenage girl's bedroom wall. And if you were a girl and gay and trying to cover for it, you'd probably put up Tom Cruise anyway. He's a pretty good smokescreen. My sister was slightly after this, so there was a lot more Brad Pitt. But if she'd been a little bit older, it would have been Tom Cruise. Yeah. See, I had Keanu Reeves and Kate Bush, but then I'm not heterosexual. Yeah, Keanu was hitting the Keanu sense, the first of many. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was actually surprising that in, in judging this up for the uh, cinema, Sorkin wasn't pressured into, or he may have been asked but this declined, maybe we get these two hot starlets to bone out of frustration. Mm. Uh, there's speci- a couple of points when it could have happened. Maybe. And, and I'm glad it didn't. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I allowed Dawson and Downey to spend any more time in prison than absolutely necessary because their attorney had predetermined the path of least resistance. I'm sexually aroused, Commander. There's, yeah, and I, there's a very good reason why I'm glad. Get a didn't. single release at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Show me courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that when they first meet, he's a cocky shit to he's her. He's a cocky shit to her, <laughs> and she is trying to um, to prove herself. <laughs> Not really prove herself to him, but just prove that she's got something that he doesn't. And not only does he not care, but the system doesn't seem to care either. I can friggin' taste her frustration. And the, the dismissal. Oh my God, flames on the side of my face. 
I think this reaches an absolute boiling point when she reels off a long list of shit that he has to pay attention to and get serious about. Mm -hmm. And he replies, I'm sexually aroused in a kind of, wow. Yeah. You're not going to be the... Like, that's... Now you should feel like Clarence Thomas, Jerry Maguire. This was during made during a time when men could be cocky shits and get the girl. Like, mm. uh, so it was nice to see that he didn't. Yeah, Kurt Russell basically made a career on that, and a marriage. Indeed. And there are still absolutely films made where smart-ass man babies still win everything and get the girl. But that is a trope that modern writers have been subverting, examining, twisting. And while Caffey doesn't get the girl here, he definitely gets the story. It's about him. Not Joe. It could almost be a Marvel movie. Yeah, so the first uh, first act is feeling out the case and a general tension between this being an open and shut case and it being something more and something darker and something deeper and something that they don't want eyes on, like mm. I said. Yeah. The issue of self-sacrifice comes up near the middle end of the first act where uh, the two Marines charged with murder of uh, Santiago, it is said that they have been uh, issued a code red, which is something that Sorkin found out because his sister, who's very much the basis of Joe in this from the looks of it, you know, told him about the story of a, a young Marine who was set upon by six other Marines who basically disciplined him violently on behalf of their squad commander for fucking up. This is straight out of Full Metal Jacket. Everything they do to uh, Leonard in that yeah, is effectively a code red. It would be a code red, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's never directly issued by uh, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. It is, however, instigated by him. Mm-hmm. He makes them do push-ups and says to them, you are in pain because of this guy, knowing exactly what will happen, a soap bar beating in that case. It's, it's effectively, and the way it's outlined, and they have a couple of different uh, people give examples of what a code red might entail, and I think it's quite ingenious how... It's it's explained through that means. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, it's we need to sort this person out and bring them mm. up to code. We can't do it using the red tape that we have to work within. Not necessarily that we can't, but that we can't be asked to. Wow. I, I always took this to be that they couldn't attend to Santiago in in a way that they felt would be effective... Because of protocols, well, yeah, which they I mean, circumvented but with the instigation of violence. In a way, there's there's elements of all sorts of this, and I'm being flippant with that they can't be asked to. A, a bigger part of it is um, using it as a method to discipline all the men at the same time because they all see this happen and they go, "Well, I'm not going to let that happen to me." If they're complicit in this as well, exactly. then they, that they become guilty and culpable yeah. and part of the system. And in the one hand, they don't want to end up being in Santiago's And you are also place. creating trauma bonds between the soldiers who are involved. On the night of August 2nd, did you fire a shot across the fence line into Cuba? Yes, sir. Why? My mirror engaged, sir. His mirror? For every American sentry post, there's a Cuban counterpart they're called mirrors. Lance Corporal's claiming that his mirror was about to fire at him. Santiago's letter to the NIS said you fired illegally. He's saying that the, uh, the guy, the mirror, he never made a move. 
Oh, Harold. You see what I'm getting at? If Santiago didn't have anything on you, then why did you give him a code red? Because he broke the chain of command, sir. He what? He went outside of his unit, sir. If he had a problem, he should have spoken to me, sir. Then a sergeant, then company commander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then... All right, all right. Did you assault Santiago with the intent of killing him? No, sir. What was your intent? To train him, sir. Train him to do what? Train him to think of his unit before himself. To respect the code. Unit, core, God, country. I beg your pardon? Unit, core, God, country. Sir. Particularly of note during this middle end section of... Uh, uh... Act one is these two, um, Dawson and Downey, are going to be sentenced to jail. And Caffey is trying to get them to plea bargain. Say, does he, is he asking them for the, to say we were given orders to do this? It was a code red. No, no, because the, in, in the initial stages, they don't know that that was the case. And yeah. that's the point. The, they the haven't defendants heard the, yeah. will not tell them anything. They respond yes and no to direct questions, but they don't volunteer any information. Code red is kind of like uh, the moment in The Usual Suspects when uh, Kuyan comes back and he goes, who's Kaiser Soze? Ah, fuck! Yeah. And suddenly the film takes a turn. Exactly. And it's going, right, there's more to this. And the word you're looking for is Kaiser Soze. Yeah. Um, Joe picks up on the, the idea that it may be a code red very early on. Mm. She's internal affairs, which means chances are she's heard of them before and had to potentially had to deal with them. The charge that is being levelled at Dawson and Downey initially is one of murder and conspiracy to commit murder because the way that Santiago died it's possible that they poisoned the rag that they put in his mouth. It's posited. Um, yeah, it's it's theorised that that's what happened. And so they're being given this very high charge. What Caffey is trying to do is get it down to something less so that they can get a, you know, a, a shorter term in jail, find something that they're willing to, add, to plead guilty to, yeah. basically. This is Caffey working his usual... Uh process uh he's plea bargaining and they don't want to because as far as they're concerned to get the reduced sentence to get the six months a hockey season in jail they have to effectively sell out the system they were raised in yes their dependence on the marine corps is absolutely contingent on this whole case is how they feel about the organization that they are being tried on behalf of mm. effectively also they're being asked to lie yeah the, which the way they see it they're being asked to to admit to something that they know they didn't intend to do and they're disgusted with Caffey especially uh Dawson uh for what he's suggesting which to them is a breach of honor and honor most definitely comes into this film and I'll be uh, and that is my point to end on regarding honor do Code Red still happen on this base, crew? Joe, the colonel doesn't need to answer that. Yes, he does. No, he really doesn't. Yeah, he really does. Colonel. You know, it just hit me. She outranks you, Danny. Yes, sir. I want to tell you something, and listen up, because I really mean this. You're the luckiest man in the world. There is nothing on this earth sexier, believe me, gentlemen, than a woman that you have to salute in the morning. Promote them all, I say, because this is true. 
If you haven't gotten a blowjob from a superior officer, well, you're just letting the best in life pass you by. Colonel, the practice of Code Reds is still condoned course, by officers on this base. my problem is I'm a colonel, so I'll just have to go on taking cold showers until they elect some gal president. <laughs> I need an answer to my question, sir. Take caution in your tone, Commander. I'm a fair guy, but this fucking heat is making me absolutely crazy. You want to ask me about code reds on the record, I tell you I discourage the practice in accordance with the commander's directive. Off the record, I tell you it is an invaluable part of close infantry training. And if it happens to go on without my knowledge, so be it. I run my unit how I run my unit. You want to investigate me, roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trained to kill me, so don't think for one second that you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. Colonel, I just need a copy of Santiago's transfer order. What's that? Santiago's transfer order. You guys have paperwork on that kind of thing. I, I just need it for the file. For the file? Yeah. You can have a copy of the transfer order for the file, Danny. I'm here to help in any way I can. Thank you. You believe that, don't you, Danny? That I'm here to help you in any way I can? Of course. Corporal will take you by personnel on your way out to the flight line, and you can have all the transfer orders that you want. But you have to ask me nicely. I beg your pardon? You have to ask me nicely. You see, Danny, I can deal with the bullets and the bombs and the blood. I don't want money and I don't want medals. What I do want is for you to stand there in that faggoty white uniform and with your Harvard mouth extend me some fucking courtesy. You gotta ask me nicely. Colonel Jessup. If it's not too much trouble, I'd like a copy of the transfer order. Sir. No problem. Dan Caffey is trying to live up to his father, Lionel. And uh, there's a, when, during his confrontation with uh, Nathan Jessup, Jack Nicholson, on fucking fire in this movie, this is the kind of performance they give Best Supporting Actor Oscars to. Jessup effectively puts him in his place by praising his father he uh, he talks about this this great unseen lawyer of stature who uh, you know fought the good fight to, in you know he specifically cites uh, some girls of color who weren't able to go to school and and Lionel Caffey said you know we'll see about that that sets up what then becomes throughout the film just this mostly unspoken sometimes directly referred to relationship with this impossible to equal father figure uh, who uh, he's clearly attempting to follow in the footsteps of and is, we can infer, somewhat disappointed in his own progress to achieve some measure of parity with. Yeah, well, one of the fundamental elements, and this is something that I do actually feel some identification with Danny on this count, um, and that is the, the being afraid to fail. He is afraid of disappointing his father by losing a case. So he only deals with cases that he can 
win, quote unquote mm-hmm. win, um, by taking the shortest route to the finish mm-hmm. line possible. Also, specifically cases where very little ethical bones are being bent. Mm. Yeah. And he's using uh, civilian lawyer tricks to do it. There's a really neat way that this is this is outlined. The scene where he's talking to the guy when he's playing softball about the uh, signalman who bought and smoked the dime bag of oregano. Mm. He has this clearly pre-prepared line about you're going to go blind on paperwork because a signalman first class bought and smoked a dime bag of oregano. Mm. Later in the film, he overhears what sounds like an insurance investigator using exactly the same line, effectively boasting to somebody about his um, conquest of the day. And it sort of suggests that this is a line that they were given maybe by a tutor in law school. And this is something that they trot out because it's pat, it's quick, it's fancy, and it makes them seem smart and sharp. But it's a trick. It gets the job done, but it's uh, unscrupulous. Yeah. It's cheap. And unprincipled. This is a film which uh, Reiner described as uh, Caffey growing from a boy into a man. And I'd never thought about it like that because growing up, obviously, he was considerably older than me. And now he's considerably younger than me. But I can see this cocky, young, almost goodwill hunting lawyer kid. Yeah. Uh, Maybe Matt Damon in The Rainmaker Mm. by John Grisham. Uh, And uh, everyone was doing it, you see. And he goes from that to having his morality questioned by Jessup because he's coming up against somebody who has a very dark morality and he has to hold his in contrast and, by virtue of that, grow lighter. He has to be a good man. He has to be a man of standing that he can be proud of in order to not necessarily now appease this ghost of a father who's no longer there, but just to be able to say he has actually arrived at adulthood. Yeah, that he is able to stand up shoulder to shoulder with his peers, which is a definite journey from who he is at the beginning. Um, I mean, I think they... uh Joe even says, how long have you been out of law school? And he says, a little over a year. So he is very young. But one of the best things about the the, the script and how it relates to characterization in this is that people are outlined by how other characters treat them. Mm. And everybody talks down to Kathy. Everybody treats him like a... Um, a precocious teenager who's very good at what he does and has been allowed to sit at the big boy table for that reason, but that doesn't really know how the world works, doesn't have the edge that they have, doesn't have the cynicism that they have, the understanding of how uh, things really are that they have. They are the the uh, powerful men pulling the strings at the top of the system. Kathy, if he plays ball may one day be allowed to be up there, but he's not yet. The second act of the uh, play and the the film is them coming up against the cover story and losing, and they keep losing, and eventually it gets to the point where it's going to become dangerous for them to continue because uh, they will be pushing uh, uh, on some people who can make life very, very difficult for them. 
Christopher Guest makes an appearance as the doctor who attended to the dying and then immediately afterwards dead Santiago and uh, maintains that it was, in fact, poisoned. And what we see the outline of here is, and we're going to talk about the police here, uh, it's witnessing a cover story. It's one that is extremely familiar uh, for those who've seen police accused of brutality, camera footage goes missing. Weapons and drugs appear on the dead person. Things were said but witnessed by nobody reliable. For this next section, rather than my inexpert appraisal of a very serious, far-reaching and systemic situation, I'm going to hand you over to real-life bipartisan lawyer Legal Eagle. This clip is from his video, How to Reform the Police. Part of the issue here is that some of the things that the police unions often negotiate over are not just things like salary or hours or retirement benefits, but things like what happens when individual police officers are accused of misconduct. Often you'll see in the collective bargaining agreements that the police officers, uh, if they are accused of egregious misconduct, have a certain cooling off period where it might be 48 or 72 hours before other police officers are even allowed to interview the police officers officers accused of misconduct of what actually happened. And what we have seen is that during that amount of time, think about what they're going to say to the people who are investigating. They think about getting their stories straight. They think about what particular chain of events would be most beneficial to themselves. And it will not surprise you that if you are a normal citizen who is accused of criminal misconduct, you don't get the same kind of protections that the police do because of the contracts that are written into the collective bargaining agreements between the police union and the police departments. And I've heard stories of police unions giving individual officers a, more or less a script to recite when they are accused of unlawful use of force. And so they can get their story to line up with the thing that is the best legal defense. And the only thing option I left was my firearm. This has to work, otherwise I'm, you know, I'm going to be dead. He's going to get this gun away from me. He, something's going to happen, and I'm going to be dead. And these are just a handful of examples how, in many ways, police officers get special treatment when they are accused of misconduct on their own. And that's not to say that police unions don't provide real benefits, but if people are really serious about creating a more just and fair system for everyone, not just police officers, certainly people are going to have to take a serious look at uh, the power that police unions have in this country. And because of the power that police unions have in this country, it's often been incredibly difficult to get police reforms because as a political entity, they tend to fight any kind of change at all. Beginning today, as chief, I am immediately withdrawing from the contract negotiations with the Minneapolis Police Federation. I plan to bring in subject matter experience and advisors to conduct a thorough review of how the contract can be restructured to provide greater community transparency, and more flexibility for a true reform. So if we were going to use a general principle here, we might say that perhaps there can be a rule that says police officers uh, can't get any special treatment above and beyond what any other normal citizen would get when accused of criminal misconduct. And when it comes to police oversight, perhaps we should rethink the idea that the police are able to police themselves, where instead of the police overseeing themselves, there is a board of civilians, or at least non-police officers, who are able to look at the potential misconduct and make a, a judgment over it. And perhaps even better than just a civilian oversight board is a civilian oversight board with the ability to make high stakes decisions that if they do find misconduct, they are able to levy penalties against the police officers or potentially even fire them. Now, 
Obviously, this is something that police unions want to fight against because they don't want uh, some other third party having uh, sway over individual police officers, but it's something that other police departments have done and uh, can make sure that when there is misconduct that the, the bad actors are punished for it. So that is Legal Eagle, a sober, calming voice amidst the chaos of 2020. This 48-hour grace period is afforded to cops being investigated but never afforded to civilians because this is an institution that protects individual cells to preserve the whole. Because if one cop goes down for corruption, that then leads to a paper trail. And then the whole thing starts to unravel. We've had harrowing stories throughout 2020 of good cops, the few who actually are trying to help the system, being ignored, being dismissed, being forcibly relocated, being discredited, being threatened, being professionally ruined. Just instances of attempting to do what the police are supposed to be there for, which is to root out crime and corruption. To protect the integrity of the front end of America's justice system, by blowing the whistle on the few bad apples. I'm going to hand you back to Legal Eagle for why that phrase doesn't work. We've already acknowledged that some police misconduct or allegations of police misconduct is completely fabricated. But also, some of that information is absolutely not uh, fabricated, and we have to admit that the police engage in misconduct. And it's important that because police are public servants, that not just convictions regarding police misconduct, but also even allegations of police misconduct be made available to both the cities and the, the people who those cities serve. And the statistics tend to bear this out as well, that only a small number of police officers are responsible for the vast majority of allegations and convictions of police misconduct. So it's very important to have access to that data, that information, to know who those potential bad apples are. And you always have a bad apple no matter where you go. You have bad apples. And uh, there are not too many of them. And I can tell you, there are not too many of them in the police department. And by the way, the metaphor of the bad apples, it's being thrown around a lot, especially by police officers and police departments claiming that it's only a couple of bad apples. Well, remember, that analogy is that a handful of bad apples will spoil the entire barrel of apples. So when you have a potential systemic issue, the fact that you're pointing to a couple of bad apples doesn't actually support your argument that it's individuals and not the system itself. Because those couple of bad actors, those bad apples can have a corrupting influence on the rest of the entire department. So be careful what metaphors you use in what particular context. It's important to know what those words mean. We need to redefine what the barrel is in this case, because if a few bad apples spoil the police, that nationwide network will, and clearly has, spoiled the greater barrel that is America. But there is a parallel between the police protecting their own uh, to prevent further investigation and to protect the whole, and the military doing that. Quite apart from the alarming trend in recent years for the cops to receive military surplus through their bloated funding and play dress-up with armoured personnel carriers and weapons of warfare across areas that have absolutely no call for that level of ordinance and aggression, crucially without the military training to take responsibility for it. The military and a few good men, especially as exemplified by Colonel Jessup. So this is directed at the top brass, not those on the fence. 
is content with policing itself and allowing this level of corruption to go on and wants to sweep it under the carpet, wants to plea bargain this, wants to push it through, suggests that this is something that is very endemic. This is something that goes way deep into American control and higher office. The film also lays down a general lack of empathy being considered a requirement for the fighting men of America. The Full Metal Jacket did this in a more pronounced fashion. Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is trying to weed out empathy and just make these men obey orders in order to kill efficiently and to protect the core. Unit, core, God, country. As in those are the order that they see the most important things to them. Their unit comes first, then the Corps, then God, then the USA. Now, I know for a fact that we've got a couple of Marines who listen to this show. Now, you pretty much can't listen to School of Movies without empathy. So I can extrapolate from that that the fictionalised tyrants of Hartman and Jessup are exemplary of a heartless system taken to its extreme rather than indicative of all the men. They exist within these fictionalised works as a critique. I expect to get messages setting us straight after this, and I hope the good-faith arguments that we're making in favour of the Americans who decide to protect their country in this way are received and understood. The same goes for cops. This elimination of empathy is a mode of existence that has been drummed into America for longer than most people would be comfortable admitting, and goes way beyond the military and the police. Duty to your company over the needs, and often the safety and health, of individuals. And despite the fact that we have seen medical staff being selfless and fearless all year, the current medical system would have things the opposite. You're using systems to override the ethical spine that that profession should operate under. A healer. But this also applies to the government, where empathy is perceived as a weakness. And if you are searching for a way to put laws through that protects people, you're going to be up against a lot of red tape, which suggests that looking after people is not as important as looking after, say, the economy. Mm. When we are directly being told, go out, start business up again. Some of you may die, but that is a sacrifice the economy is willing to take. Yeah, and and I would say politics generally... It falls under this same category. Are you here to serve or are you here for power? Because if it's the latter, then you shouldn't be. Also, no women presidents, please. They repeatedly address the commander in chief in this film as the head of all the armies and courts. Mm. And like they keep saying, oh, you want to talk to my boss? They live in the White House. Mm-hmm. I, there's, there's one line in this where I won't quote the whole thing because it's foul. Um, but Jack Nicholson is talking about uh, female superior officers and to rub his own rank in their faces, points out that he won't have a female superior officer unless they elect some gal president. This film was made 28 years ago. We still haven't had a female president. 
Could we get on that, please? And he says until they elect some gal president with a level measure of contempt that suggests he knows <laughs> They're never gonna. that will never happen. Certainly not in his lifetime. Which is depressing. Mm. I still think we can win. Maybe you should drink a little. Look, we'll go to Randolph in the morning and we'll make a motion for a continuance 24 hours. Why would we want to do that? To subpoena Colonel Jessup. What? Listen for a second. No. Just hear me no, out. I won't listen and I won't hear you out. Your passion is compelling, Joe. It's also useless. Loudon Downey needed a trial lawyer today. You chicken shit. You're going to use what happened today as an excuse to give up. It's over. Why did you ask Jessup for the transfer order? What? In Cuba, why did you ask Jessup for the transfer order? What does order? it matter? Why? I wanted the damn transfer order. Bullshit. You could have gotten it by picking up the phone and calling any one of a dozen departments at the Pentagon. You didn't want the transfer order. You wanted to see Jessup's reaction when you asked for the transfer order. You had an instinct, and it was confirmed by Markinson. Now, damn it, let's put Jessup on the stand and end this thing. What possible good could come from putting Jessup on the stand? He told Kendrick to order the code red. He did? That's great. Why didn't you say so? And of course, you have proof of that. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting. You were sick the day they taught law at law school. You put him on the stand and you get it from him. Oh, we get it from him. Yes, no problem. We get it from him. Colonel Jessup, isn't it true that you ordered the code red on Santiago? Listen, we're all a little... Eh, I'm sorry. Your time's run out. What do we have for the losers, Judge? Well, for our defendants, it's a lifetime at exotic Fort Leavenworth. And for defense counsel Kathy, that's right, it's a court-martial! Yes, Johnny! After falsely accusing a highly decorated Marine officer of conspiracy and perjury, Lieutenant Kathy will have a long and prosperous career teaching typewriter maintenance at the Rocco Colombo School for Women. Thank you for playing, should we or should we not? Follow the advice of the galactically stupid! The third act of this is when uh, Kathy realizes, after hitting a really low point along with uh, Joe and Kevin Pollock, Sam, his uh, uh, close compatriot uh, in this case, uh, that they're going to lose and lose huge. Uh, because they're up against it, they don't have the evidence they need. Uh, in the end, he works out that Santiago was apparently supposed to be moved off the base, flown out at 6 a.m. on the night he was uh, attacked and eventually died. And yet his room suggests zero preparation for a flight that was going to happen in six hours. This points resoundingly to the likelihood that Jessup ordered Kendrick, played by Kiefer Sutherland, to give Santiago a code red, and he in fact wasn't going anywhere. The cover story does not match the specifics of the room where it happened. Jessup told Kendrick to order the code red, Kendrick did, and our clients followed the order. The cover-up is in our case. To win, Jessup needs to tell the court members that he ordered the code red. And now you think you can get him to just say it? I think he wants to say it. I think he's pissed off that he's got to hide from us. I think he wants to say that he made a command decision and that's the end of it. He eats breakfast 300 yards away from 4,000 Cubans that are trained to kill him. And no one's going to tell him how to run his unit, least of all the Harvard mouth in his faggoty white uniform. I need to shake him, put him on the defensive, and lead him right where he's dying to go. That's it? That's the plan? That's the plan. How are you going to do it? I have no idea. 
fundamentally, he Jessup is frustrated about the fact that he has to lie to cover up what happened. Mm. Because as far as he's concerned, he made a decision and it shouldn't be anybody's place to question him on it. Of course, if this was 2020, he could just use the yeah and so what defence. There are several elements of this which speak to Dawson's character. This is the, the guy who is um, accused of... Santiago's murder he's the one who committed the fence line shooting he's the one who's going to get in trouble if Santiago tells on him but up to this point they make it clear Dawson has not allowed any of the others to get Santiago Hmm. he's been protecting him up to the point where he was given the order not to and it's specific that the person who was protecting him is asked to be the one inflicting the violence upon him. Yeah. Because, again, uh, in do- doing so is a, a twofold action for the core insofar as in intention it silences Willie. It makes the culpable party complicit in that silencing. But also it, according to the Code Red's guidelines, disciplines a Marine into falling back in line. Mm. Yeah. In this case, disciplining both of them because Dawson was already in trouble for sheltering another Marine who'd been um, under a code red previously. He was confined to barracks and wasn't allowed any food and Dawson brought him food. If you listen to the way Marines and the Corps are spoken of, the reverence, it is clear they've been mythologised, venerated to the point of being beyond regular soldiers the way that Spartans were seen, both the ancient variety and the ones in the Halo universe. This does not leave much room for human frailty. They must transcend that to achieve their status. And officers like Kendrick and Jessup see kindness and consideration as frailty, the way that the original Spartans did. Only Markinson, played by J.T. Walsh, is plagued by conscience and awareness that everybody involved in this mythological fighting force is still a flesh-and-blood human. And then there's the whole, you know, I want the truth, you can't handle the truth speech thing, which is an electric scene, and uh, apparently Nicholson did it multiple times. They, uh, uh did every angle on the uh, scene and rather than just sort of just reading off his script lines, uh, Nicholson did it full volume, max force the whole time, even though he didn't have to, uh, to give people someone to act against. But also because he was, in his words, he loves acting and he had something to really get his teeth into at this point. He really got this character and, uh, you know, plays him with venom and fire But that gave me more respect and understanding of Nicholson's character. It's easy to point at him and say, he just turns up and is Jack Nicholson. And I've said that for years. But the idea that he would do this again and again and again, being Max Jack Nicholson each time, suggests he genuinely does care about being Jack Nicholson properly, if that makes sense. Like, if he's going to be delivering something to you, he's going to do it right. And he's going to do that with a respect for the actors around him rather than just phoning it in Mm. like say johnny depp in pirates of the caribbean 5 who had to have his lines piped in via earpiece because he couldn't be bothered to memorize them or like marlon brando in superman who wanted to play the uh, role like a bread product 
Santiago was a substandard Marine. He was being transferred. That's not what you said. You said he was being transferred because he was in grave danger. That's correct. You said I... he was in danger. I said grave danger. You said, is there I any recall other... what I, I said. I can have the court reporter read back to you. I know what I said. I don't have to have it read back to me like I'm... Why the two orders? orders? Colonel? Sometimes men take matters into their own hands. No, sir, you made it clear just a moment ago that your men never take matters in their own hands. Your men follow orders or people die. So Santiago shouldn't have been in any danger at all, should he have, Colonel? You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut country. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had Marcus inside a phony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled you to You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did! And I'm going to close out talking about honor. Because this film comes down to a personal code through honor. It's something that we get told about the parameters of and that we can adopt a given code and be the given definition of honor along with it. If we join the Marines, we're told what honor is loyalty to the core. But to really understand what true honor is, you have to look inside yourself at what your own conscience is telling you. However, within a strictly rigid system, honor cannot truly exist because they cannot allow for personal decision-making and refusal to follow orders. It is a spring that has to come from within, which cannot exist within a rigid system where everyone is expected to follow orders. We follow orders or people die. That is something that the Marine Corps pride themselves on. And while there can be honourable Marines, this questions the nature of honour by proxy. Santiago's accidental killers were attempting to be honourable in protecting the core that they love and obsess over, the thing that's given them their purpose, the thing that's nourished them, the thing that became everything important, that became their whole world. So when they're told, just spend six months in jail, all you have to do is plea bargain this, they find the idea disgusting. And yet, by the end... 
on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. The members find the accused not guilty. On the charge of conduct unbecoming a United States Marine, the members find the accused guilty as charged. The accused are hereby sentenced to time already served, and you are ordered to be dishonorably discharged from the Marine Corps. Court Marshal is adjourned. All rise. What does that mean? How? What did that mean? I don't understand. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code red. I know. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code red. What did we do wrong? It's not that simple. What did we do wrong? We did nothing wrong! Yeah, we did. Dawson realizes that despite what they've been told this whole time, the two Marines acted dishonorably, thus exposing the fatal flaw in a system that tells you honor and loyalty to an organization are the same thing. Honor and loyalty are not necessarily the same thing. We were supposed to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves. We were supposed to fight for Willie. That's what our knights are for. That's what the Marines standing on the line are for. That's what the soldiers ready to lay down on the wire and be the line in front of us are for. That's what the police are supposed to be for, that thin blue line between crime and those victimized by crime. They're not supposed to be the ones, during peaceful protests, instigating riots. Mm to protect and serve. Don't stand behind that motto if that's not what you mean. Our protectors should be knights in ideal, but human to the core, and they should not act out of spite. We mentioned this briefly earlier, but the film has dated a little. I think fundamentally, as I said, it's mainly down to it being a little naive in places and having generally the moral understanding of the world that a 15-year-old would have. Um, in the early 90s. In the early 90s. In a is, much purer time. Quite naive. Disgusting, in, rotten, terrible shit was going on. Yeah. We were just unaware of it. Well, indeed. It's, that's what I love about LA Confidential, despite the fact that mm -hmm. it has Kevin Spacey in it. It yeah. presents us with the view of the 50s that we believe, because we've all uh, you know, been watching Leave It to Beaver, that the 50s was just this squeaky clean place where horrendous things didn't happen. LA Confidential lifts the flap on that and shows us the underbelly and says, no, there was corruption there from the start. This was the making of America. Yeah. If there's one element of the whole thing that I think really doesn't stand up to the, to the passage of time and the passage of my understanding of how things work, it's the very closing part of the, the court scene when Dawson goes to leave and... Danny says to him... You're welcome. You, yeah, basically. <laughs> he, says, he says, you don't have to have a patch on your arm to have honour. And what he's basically doing is telling this exceptional soldier that he's allowed to make his own decisions. Because this is something that Danny has only just learned for himself. 
And it's got a little bit of white saviour on it, I will admit that. Yeah, the fact that uh, um, Dawson is black is yeah. you know, but the, problematic in this context. But for me, I think whether this was what it meant to me at 15, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'd quite if it quite crystallised in the same way. But what it means to me now is about the the fallibility of systems, especially when they get big enough to encase a country the size of America. How they can be used by the people at the top of the system for their own benefit. And essentially, you the the way you see some of the the facets of a, a a national system in this is you've got Jessup at the top, the white colonel who's made his way all the way to the top and now holds the strings of everybody's lives in his hand, counting only the president as higher up. Exactly, him. and he gets to make choices that are going to result in people being killed. And the fact that he says in the courtroom, "We follow orders, or people die," he ignored an order. He was told, "You don't." condone code reds and he filed it in the waste paper bin and guess what people died um you've got then uh, markinson played by jt walsh who is in a similar position but and he has a conscience he has a conscience but that's because he can now see himself as he's the older white man who has uh who is complicit with this system and is now feeling horrendously guilty for the the consequences of this and the only solution that he can see is to commit suicide that's that's the only way he can see to get to to leave this system that was added for the film it wasn't in the original play he simply sends them a clue yeah uh, but then he did something more involved mm. for the show but it's dramatized it's it's an appropriate moment to show that there are consequences to yeah. this beyond just Santiago's death. Absolutely. Which should be enough in its own. And and they're the main people sort of at the top of the system. You've also got at the top of the system Judge Randolph, who's the uh, the black uh, court-martial judge who eventually makes the, the judgment on uh, Jessup and on the, the whole situation. And he's like the, the elements of the system which have the potential to have virtue and value. And then at the bottom of the system, you've got Danny, who's the educated white boy that if he plays his cards right and goes to all the softball games and the basketball games and hangs out in the bars with the right people, is eventually going to be uh, allowed entry to the top of the system. Uh, Joanne, who is never going to be allowed up there because she's a woman. Dawson, who is never going to be allowed up there, no matter how good he is at his job, because he's black, because he, he makes decisions about whether what's going on is right or wrong that people don't want him to make. And Downey, who appears to have an intellectual disability and is sort of the, the other corner of this. Here's the layers of people at the bottom who this system ultimately is going to get dropped on them. They shore it up. They're the ones who believe in the rules of the system and that if they play by the rules of the system, that eventually it will work for them. But it's never going to work for them. It's not uncoincidental that uh, Santiago is Latino. Yes. And that Jessup at the very top is ordering a black man and a white man of very limited means to effectively, through middle management, to oppress subdue, beat into shape, effectively terrorise a man that nobody's going to care about. 
Absolutely. And so these systems that are being used by the people at the top to crush the people at the bottom can be full of good apples and that doesn't stop them being riddled with flaws and fragilities that make them not fit for any purpose. And the only way to move beyond them is to uh, start dismantling them. Shield, Hydra, it all goes. He's right. And there's that incredibly memorable uh, scene with you can't handle the truth in it at the end that everyone sort of reels off without really thinking about what it means. And I started to really chip away at what that uh, could entail. And I don't know whether Sorkin really intended this, but you can infer a hell of a lot by you can't handle the truth. This time I, I, I interpreted that Dan and by extension we cannot ha- what we can't handle is that we are run by men who make rules for ordinary people but operate within a system of their own making that excuses them from these rules. Jessup holds his charge of defense of the nation up as a get out of responsibility free card. The American military may have good men in it, but it is operated at the behest of men seeking to secure a power base for themselves. Jessup's main aim appears to be to further his own career. He smugly talks about his uh, promotion. He seems to be almost psychopathically detached and dismissive of the very people that he was charged with protecting. Mm. He exemplifies the sickness of cutting off empathy entirely. Mm. And you actually see... Kathy employing a little bit of that himself at the beginning. There's echoes of it in his smugness, his uh, conviction that he's a really good lawyer, and his, uh, I think he says something to Joanne about, um, I was requested by division, so somebody up there thinks I'm a pretty good lawyer. Yes, because as a white young man of connections and renown, he is protected by that system. Yeah. And if, like in a way that someone like Santiago could never could be. Could never be, exactly. And the, and the point being that if he stays on that track, all right, he might not ever be Jessup, but that's the direction he's headed in. And Dawson and Downey are the two scapegoats being cast down as sacrificial goats, a permissible loss to keep the system in the form of Jessup going. Mm. To put you can't handle the truth in another, even clearer, more insidious way, they believe they own us. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Thank you this week to our top sponsors, Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, who commissioned this show, David Sheely, Kevin Vai, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. And on our Patreon bonus feed this week, you'll find our half-hour quick review of Steven Spielberg's The Colour Purple and a special hour-long Sound of Gonzo tribute episode to the music of Ennio Morricone.